This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. The events, the events that led up to the story of Purim, which, which is interesting because uh, no one really talks about the events that led up to the story of Purim. So let's today uh, discuss going back to the destruction of the first temple, which took place in around 587, 586 BCE, 586 587 BCE, destruction of the first temple. It really was a watershed event in Jewish history. Why? It was the first time the Jews were in exile since the Egyptian exile. We all know about the Egyptian exile. That's the whole Torah, the five books of Moses. The Jews left Egypt and uh, they're moving to Israel. And now we are discussing another exile. So 586, 587 BCE, the second exile was the exile of Babylon. The Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Now what's interesting is the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets, Isaiah and others, has, have been warning the Jewish people for many years, please do Teshuvah, do Teshuvah, do Teshuvah. Hashem will destroy Israel, will destroy Jerusalem. And unfortunately, the Jewish people never listened. Unfortunately, they deluded, they deluded themselves. They felt they were able to rebel against the power of Babylon and sustain the rebellion. They thought that Egypt, the Egyptians would protect them, thinking that the southern neighbor preferred to confront Babylon north of Jerusalem rather than fighting them on their own borders. However, Egypt was not prepared to, to spill one drop of Egyptian blood to save the Jewish people. Another delusion was maybe the Babylon would forget about them. However, the king of Babylon was not about to let Judea slipped out of his orbit. He came with his old army to put down the rebellion. He came with a cruelty, a vengeance, and a finality. He not only wanted to teach the Jews a lesson, but knock out of their minds of anyone else that you could cross the Babylonian Empire and suffer no consequences. Nebuchadnezzar came from the north. He invaded the outskirts of Judea. By the early part of the summer, his army had encamped around Jerusalem. He cut off the city, and he systematically tightened the noose around Jerusalem. On the ninth day of the month of Tammuz, the walls of the city were breached, and the Babylonian army poured through. Within a month, they had destroyed all pockets of Judean resistance. Tens of thousands of Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem, which brought in famine and plague, and then by sword and fire. Those who did so fled. However, the Babylonians had anticipated this. They herded all the escapees into giant slave camps from which they were transported into exile in Babylon. So Jews were transported to exile. Those that survived were transported to Babylon in exile. At sunset on the beginning of the ninth day of Ab, the Babylonians set fire to the temple. The Talmud in Ta'anit 29a reports the fire began at night just after the conclusion of Shabbat. In other words, that year, the day of, of the ninth of Av took place on a Sunday. By Sunday night, the first temple was destroyed. The temple of Solomon, Shalom who built the first temple. His temple was destroyed on the ninth of Av. The ninth of Av became a fast day of the Jewish calendar. The second temple, too, would be destroyed four centuries later on the very same date, the ninth of Av. If the Jewish people did not behave like a people meant to represent Hashem, to be a kingdom of spiritual leaders, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. What value was the temple? It was only stone, bricks, mortar, and, and wood. Hashem's protective hand was removed. 
when, when it was removed, the temple is an, an empty shell. If the owner of the house is no longer there, then the robbers can plunder. And that's what happened to the temple. The owner of the house is no longer there. Shekinah's presence had left because of our sins, and it was just an empty hut, shell. So we are the players in history. There's no destiny. This is something that we ourselves are responsible for our own history. What happens to us is a consequence of our actions. This is a fundamental belief of Judaism. There's reward and punishment. So therefore, what happens to us, what happened to our temple was a fundamental repayment for our actions and misdemeanors of the, over the years of the first temple period, which we, if you look at the prophet Jeremiah and uh, Yeshayahu, you see them screaming and pleading with the Jews. Number one is free your slaves. Interesting. The Jews would not free their own Jewish slaves. They, and the book of Jeremiah tells us they did free their Jewish slaves, but they found that they couldn't survive without the slaves and they took them back. So interesting, this concept of redeeming the slaves. The Talmud says three cardinal sins. The temple was destroyed. Uh, murder, idolatry, and immorality. So paganism is a lack of allegiance to the high authority. Paganism is idolatry, which is basically believing in the gods which are man-made, man-made gods. That's a tremendous insult to God. Tremendous insult to God. God gets very upset when he sees his creations worshipping their own gods, their own creations. So paganism creates gods in man's image. We, we believe in a God. We, we are meant to act in God's image. So paganism is creating gods in man's image, whereas we are meant to be created in God's image. We have to be basing ourselves on godly morality, not an man-made morality. So that is a very important idea, the idea of, of uh, three sins that caused the destruction of the first temple, adultery, murder, and idolatry. So murder is cheapness of life. Life was cheap. They place little value on human life. Sometimes we too, we hear the news, we hear this guy died and this guy died, this guy was killed, murder, this and that, and we don't pay attention. So that's the cheapness of life. We get, person gets used to it, it's cheapness of life. And uh, the human life reigns supreme. We have to understand the value of each human life is in, infinite, infinite. A person saves one human being is like he saved the whole world, the Talmud says. A person saves one human life. He saved the whole world. So human life is tremendously valuable in Judaism. So it's very, very important. So uh, in the Torah, human life reigns supreme. And the third sin was immorality, which is the loss of understanding of, a, of human beings' role in the world. And we're not animals. We are human beings. We have to live in a higher level. We have to live a moral life. So despite everything, in the land of the enemies, the Jewish people were able to change and somehow survive. So in Babylon, it's interesting how the Jewish people were able to change and survive. And even though the temple was destroyed, they came up with this concept, Anshe Knesset Dola came up with this concept of small temples. What does that mean, small temples? Synagogues. Beit Knesset. Instead of, instead of one big Beit Mikdash, where all the Jews would go three times a year, now there was a small Beit Knesset that every single Jew could go and pray three times a day instead of three times a year, three times a day. You know, when I was uh, when I was a rabbi in Vancouver, one of the uh, people I was trying to persuade to come to shul, he would tell me that was his excuse. The Torah doesn't say to come every day to shul. The Torah doesn't say to come once a week to shul. The Torah says come three times a year to the temple. That was his excuse. So it's very hard to persuade him to come every day or come every once a week. But uh, that's how Judaism evolved. So Judaism in uh, Israel was a temple-based 
religion, which is agricultural society. It was based on giving tithes. It was based on farmers. The, all the laws of the land of Israel, are, are, a lot of them are based on uh, agricultural law. And now they're in the exile. There's no agricultural law. It doesn't apply to them. The laws of the temple don't apply because the temple was not there. No more korbanot. Now it became a very personal kind of religion where you and God had a personal relationship, not based on temple attendance, but on praying three times a day. The Anshaykhanis Adola made this idea of praying three times a day and attending these small synagogues and the idea of a minyag, what a brilliant idea to keep the cohesiveness of the Jewish people. So the Bet Knesset served three functions. Number one, as its name implies, Knesset is to gather the Jews together. This way they could meet and this way they could make shiduchim, they could find the venues uh, to avoid intermarriage. They could meet each other and socialize together. Beit Knesset is also Beit Tefillah. It's a place of prayer. It's a house of praying. And it's also a place to learn Torah. So this, this guaranteed the continuation of the Jewish people. These three things guarantee the continuity of the Jewish people. And this was a tremendous revolution in Jewish life. So this idea of a Beit Knesset, which was made in exile in Babylon by the Anshe Knesset, the idea of a prayer book, the idea of formalized prayer, again, was made by the Anshe Knesset in Babylon. So these were revolutions in Jewish life, which helped to strengthen Judaism and helped for Judaism to survive in exile. So we have now miniature sanctuaries. Hashem could find a place in our miniature sanctuaries, now miniature houses of study in our very hearts. So despite the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, there was a replacement miniature replacements all over Babylon, which were built to have houses of worship for all the Jews. So we had to, we built miniature sanctuaries and uh, Judaism strengthened and survived for thousands of years after that exile. That is why the destruction of the first temple is really a watershed event in Jewish history. Nothing was the same after that destruction. Nothing was the same. The first commonwealth was lost. The first temple where you could see and sense Hashem's presence was lost and nothing was the same afterwards. So even despite the fact that they rebuilt the temple, the temple was missing certain things that they had in the first temple they never had again. The Arona Kodesh, the holy ark was lost. Never had it in the second temple. It was gone. We don't know where it is till today. It's probably buried underneath. According to Rambam, it's probably buried. There were 32 rooms. They, they, have, they found it through ultrasound. Till today, there are 32 rooms underneath the temple that has not been excavated, at least not by Jews. We don't know what's there. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's inside those rooms. But we know, Rambam says, that Shlomo Melech, when he built the first temple, he, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, when he built the first temple, he actually built rooms in it to hide the holy vessels. He knew the temple was going to be destroyed, and he built rooms in it. To hide, to hide the holy uh, utensils when the temple is going to be destroyed. And in fact, the Ramam says, Josiah the king, already 150 years or so before the destruction, actually hid these vessels. He knew the temple was going to be destroyed, and he actually hid the vessels before, way before the destruction by the Babylonians. In the final anal analysis, the way the Jewish people ultimately reacted to the tragedy represented a triumph of the spirit. In other words, the Jews never gave up. We never gave up on our religion, even despite the temple being destroyed, despite the exile, we kept our customs. Not only did we keep our customs and our traditions, we strengthened them. We built, we built synagogues, uh, we built a prayer book, 
It built customs that kept, till today, Jews around the world keep till today. And that's our Judaism today. So Judaism changed. It radically changed from being a temple-based agricultural religion to being a worldly religion that you can take anywhere you go in the world. And despite the chaos in the land of Israel, after destruction, there was a little bit of hope because the Babylonians named a guy called Gedaliah. And they made him the leader of the Jewish people. And as long as he would pay the taxes and keep order under the Babylonians, the Babylonians wanted the Jews, the remainder of the Jews, to stay behind in Israel. They did not want Israel, Judea at that time, to be an empty, barren wasteland where someone else would come in and take it over, or there'll be no taxes coming from, from uh, Judea. And therefore, they left all the farmers, what's called the Amehaaretz, the people of the land they left behind. And uh, they put Gedalia in charge. However, for a number of reasons, uh, unfortunately, Gedalia uh, was, was killed by another Jew, what happened, the king of Ammon, whose kingdom was located in modern-day Transjordan. The king of Ammon, named Baalis, objected to a continued Jewish presence in the Holy Land. He hated the Jewish people, and plus he wanted to annex it to his country. So therefore, he, he devised a scheme to undermine this Jewish government of Gedalia. And the first part of the scheme was to assassinate Gedalia. Now, obviously, he himself or his people were not allowed. They were, not, they were scared of the Babylonians. The Babylonians appointed Gedalia to be the governor of Israel. And therefore, they, they got another Jew, unfortunately, to go and assassinate Gedalia. This Jew was uh, Ishmael ben Netanya who uh, was a descendant of King David, and he felt that it was not right for a non-Davidic line to take over the, the government of Judea, and therefore he was willing to go and kill Gedalia, which he did on Rosh Hashanah. He, he went to uh, Gedalia, he invited to a party, a Rosh Hashanah party, and in the middle of the party, killed Gedalia. And uh, so that's uh, the end. That was the end, really. That was the true end of the, of the Jewish commonwealth. The Jewish people at that time who were living in Judea didn't know what to do. They were scared the Babylonians would come and destroy them, wipe them out. So what they did is they asked the prophet uh, Jeremiah. They said, listen, whatever you say, we'll do. Whatever God tells us, we'll do. And then when and Jeremiah told them, God says, stay in, in Judea. Don't worry, I will look after you. They said, no, we're going to Egypt. And, and not only did they go to Egypt, they took Jeremiah. Some people say unwillingly, they took him with them as a kind of insurance policy. And there they settled in a place eventually, which is called Alexandria, eventually Alexandria. And uh, till, uh, till recently, there was a Jewish presence there from that time, from we're talking about 500 or so BCE, by the time they destructed the temple, uh, first temple, till recently, there was uh, there's still synagogues in Alexandria. And you can, uh, you can probably go and visit them and see beautiful synagogues. I think they'll be renovated. And I'm sure, I think uh, Michelle puts, puts some pictures on our, um, on our uh, transmission on the WhatsApps uh, board. And you can see pictures of the synagogues in Egypt today. So these are, uh, Alexandria was a Jewish community from the time of the end of the first temple period till very recently. So we find that uh, that was the end. That was the true end of the first commonwealth. So they took Jeremiah with them to Egypt. And here again, we see the greatness of the prophet Jeremiah. He didn't say, you know, you're going to Egypt, good riddance. Uh, you'll see I'm right. Instead, he went with them. And unfortunately, he died in Egypt. Uh, some people say he was killed by the Jewish people who didn't want to listen to him. Anyway, they arrived in Egypt at a place called 
Tapanese Tachpanches, actually in Hebrew, Tachpanches, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 43, verse 7, which uh, was a famous city of Thebes, which was a port of the mouth of the Nile and would later be called Alexandria. And their trust in Egypt's strength was misplaced. And eventually Babylon comes and destroys Egypt and destroys a lot of the Jews who went to Egypt as well. Anyway, let's move on. There's a beautiful psalm. Well, it's a very sad psalm, Psalm 137. If you look at Psalm 137, this psalm became a psalm of mourning, which is said every night by the really pious people who get up midnight and uh, pray for the for the uh, rebuilding of the temple and mourn the destruction of the temple. Tikkun Chatzot, what's called Tikkun Chatzot. King David writes, We sat by the rivers of Babylon. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we sat, we also wept when we remembered Zion. We hung up our lyres on the willows in its midst. And uh, they, the, our, our uh, tormentors, they told us, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the reply is, how can we sing Hashem's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Yerushalayim, let my right hand forget her cunning. And this is what we say at every wedding. At the end of the wedding, we probably smash the glass. The Chatan says these words. This is straight from the Psalm 137, which is Al-Narobabel, which David, King David says, wrote with prophecy. It was uh, way before the destruction, way before the exile in Babylon, but he wrote this Psalm with prophecy for the future uh, exiles in Babylon. So the chapter in Psalm does not tell us the fate of the Jews who gave the answer that we can't sing. How can we sing this song? of uh, Yushalayim when we were in exile in Babylon, but uh, our tradition says many Jews were killed because they wouldn't sing. So the, the Babylonians knew that the Levites especially, they were the singers of the songs in the temple. They had good voices. They, had, they knew how to play music. And the Babylonians asked them to sing songs of Yushalayim, and they refused, and they were killed by the Babylonians. Anyway, the Jews would eventually make a home and thrive in Babylon. Now, it's interesting. Babylon was no picnic. Approximately a century before destruction of the temple, Babylon began, began to gain strength as an empire. The Babylonians had perennially played second fiddle to the Assyrians, whose empire ran nearly four centuries. That's the story of Jonah. Uh, go to Nineveh, turn to the Shuvah. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians, which is why Jonah did not want to go to, to Nineveh. He didn't want the Assyrians to the Shuvah. He, wanted the, he, knew, he knew the Assyrians are going to be the ones to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, the Babylonians uh, eventually captured the Assyrian Empire and they destroyed the city of Nineveh. They ground it to dust. It says they ground it to dust. So uh, the Babylonians came after the, the Assyrians. The Assyrians had exiled the 10 tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE about 150 years before the destruction of the first temple. They had to exile the 10 tribes about 150 years before the destruction of the first temple, 722-21 BCE. And in those 150 years, more than a million Jews simply disappeared from the face of the earth. And what happened to them is one of the biggest mysteries. Um, and we don't know till today, we don't know where these 10 tribes exactly are. There are some people who claim to be from the Ten Tribes. One of them is the Ethiopian Jews. Uh, the Bnei Menashe in uh, India 
some people say the Patans in uh, Afghanistan, very hard to uh, think about that. The Patans are descendants of Ephraim and, uh, and other tribes. So we don't know exactly what happened to these tribes. What we do know is one million people, one million Jews disappeared from the face of the earth over 150 years of Jewish history after the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. We lost track of where they were. Now, the prophet Jeremiah says he actually went there. He went to where they were taken in Assyria, and he brought some back. And we see that the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, actually, the numbers swelled after the destruction of, of the northern kingdom. We see many of the ten tribes probably joined the southern kingdom, but, um, and therefore they survived. But a lot of them just disappeared. We don't know where they are. They were taken away by the Assyrians. The policy of the Assyrians was to switch populations. So they would take one population away from the country they conquered and bring someone else in, into that country. They took the Jews away from Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes are gone. In their place, they put the Kuta. And uh, that's why the rabbis called the Samaritans the Kutim, from Kuta. And they became known as the Samaritans. Uh, we call, they're known as the Good Samaritans. We call them the Bad Samaritans. We're going to talk about them. Anyway, the most ruthless and powerful king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, and he was the person responsible for destroying the first temple. He was king for half a century. He lived to be almost 100, according to Jewish tradition, and more than anyone else, he made Babylon into a mighty empire. The general history books offer a perspective how Nebuchadnezzar became great. However, the Talmud in Sanhedrin 96a provides the inside story. The previous king of, of Babylon was a person called Merodach Baladan. Isaiah 39 quotes him. He had an alliance with King Hezekiah of Judea. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Babylon was interested in supporting Judea in order to weaken Assyria. When the mighty Assyrian king besieged Jerusalem on the night of Passover, Pesach, King of Sanhedrin comes with 185,000 Assyrian troops. He died, uh, well, he didn't die. His soldiers died in a plague, a miraculous plague. Um, around the walls of Jerusalem. They died in a plague. Imagine, he left the siege of Jerusalem. He came with 185,000 soldiers. He left with himself and his two sons. And so he plotted to kill his own sons because as a sacrifice to his God, instead of which they killed him. That was the end of Sanhedrin, the great Assyrian king. Anyway, so the, the Babylonians had a treaty with Judea. And when King Hezekiah was sick, uh, the king of Babylon, Merodach Baladan, sends a letter to Hezekiah. That's what the Gemara says. In the letter, he says, Peace be unto the great king Hezekiah. Peace to the great city of Jerusalem. Peace, peace be to the great God of Israel. And he put Hashem third. Nebuchadnezzar was his young scribe. When he saw that, he ran after the messenger. And he changed the order of the script of the letter. He put God first. He said, how can you put God last? You put God first. And the Talmud says every step Nebuchadnezzar took, there's different opinions. Some say he took four steps, some say he took three steps. He was rewarded by God for taking those steps in honor of God's name, put God's name first in the letter instead of third in the letter. And he was rewarded that he got this mighty empire. He built this mighty empire, Babylon. And the Talmud says that Hashem sent the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, to stop him from walking after the messenger because every step he took was rewarded tremendously. And therefore, Hashem wanted to stop him before he could. He got an uh, he got an empire that could never be stopped. So, Talmud says that Nebuchadnezzar was a dwarf, but maybe it's talking 
metaphorically and not physically. But anyway, he was may have been small of stature, or, but he made up for in ferocity. It says he had tame lions. He had a lion he would uh, ride like a horse. And he also had these boa constrictors, his pet boa constrictors. If he didn't like someone, he would tell his boa constrictor to go and eat them up. Okay, so very nice guy. And uh, the Assyrians were tolerant of other religions. However, Babylonians were completely intolerant of other religions. They insisted that everyone convert to their religion. And they were very infamous for their cruelty. In fact, all major ancient civilizations were very cruel, but Babylon was known for its cruelty. And that's how it started conquering the world, by cruelty, by keeping people under their uh, under the guard all the time. And by showing cruelties that you can never expect to rebel and get away with it. So they were very cruel people. It resembled Saddam in many respects. It was a harsh and hard society. No one helped anyone else, and violence was acceptable. Therefore, it's a little wonder. The Jews who were exiled to Babylon had no desire to assimilate into Babylonian culture. We don't find Jews assimilated to Babylonian culture. It was not an inviting culture. It was not a friendly culture. And therefore, they did not assimilate. That's a good part of it. They never assimilated into uh, the Babylonian culture. Society was foreign and not friendly. Whether for political, religious, or social reasons, the Jewish identity was much more easily preserved in Babylon. Jewish immigration through the centuries can be traced to a kind, the kind of country they lived in. The nature of Babylonian society was inherently foreign to the arriving Jewish exiles. As a result, they naturally can congregate in their own ghetto replete with their own synagogues, academies, and communal institutions. They were not interested in becoming part of Babylonian culture. They remained uninterested for a long time because we know they, they stayed in Babylon till the 1948, 40, 50s, 60s. I think the last Jew, there's maybe a few Jews left in Iraq today. But they lasted for over 2,500 years and they never really assimilated. Amazing. They never really assimilated into the Babylonian society. It was so foreign to them. That was a silver lining between, behind the fearsome dark cloud of Babylonian culture. Jews did not assimilate for the very reasons that made Babylon so fearsome. Nebuchadnezzar's policy for conquered nations was directly opposed to the Assyrian one. The Assyrian policy was to transpose populations. Nebuchadnezzar's policy was to control the population via terror. He appointed new governors who were loyal to him, and that was the system that the Romans would use much later in history as well as other nasty uh, organizations. The population did not have to be moved. They just had to be cowed and beaten into submission through acts of terror, often random in their affliction. But they got the message across that they lived at the whim and will of their conquerors. So we find that uh, that's the policy that threw Jew three Jewish youths into the fiery furnace, right? Mishael, Azariah, um, uh, three, the three Jewish youths, were thrown into the fire first because they did not bow down to the statue of the king. So that's the, that's the policy of the Babylonians to instill uh, terror. They also changed the names of these Jewish youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and uh, the Mohanetzar was a rude shock to the Jewish people. But it reinforces the greatness of what they were able to accomplish under his reign in Babylon itself. They were able to build Jewish life in a society inimical to their lifestyle and values. In spite of Babylonian intolerance, violence, and terror, the Jewish people not only survived, but thrived beyond anyone's wildest imagination. 
And the Babylonian exile set up a model of how Jewish history would function in exile. To a great extent, these patterns have held true through the ages and can be seen in our time in many uncanny and parallel ways. So the 10 tribes we talked about in exile about 150 years earlier, before the destruction of the temple, in those 150 years, more than a million Jews disappeared. By contrast, the Jews who were exiled to Babylon after the destruction of Judea established a Jewish community lasted continually until modern times, a period of 2,500 years. For well over those 1,500 first years, the Babylonian Jewish community flourished to the point. After even the destruction of the second temple, they became the undisputed center of Jewish life. And that's where the Babylonian Talmud was written after the destruction of the second temple. So they survived well into the second Commonwealth and beyond. So the question is, why did the Babylonian Jews survive and not the 10 tribes? So 11 years before the destruction of the temple, Nebuchadnezzar had taken 10,000 of the elite among the Jews and transplanted them to Babylon in an attempt to weaken Judea and prevent it from rebelling. So he took all the nobility, the Kohanim, the rabbis, the learned ones, the uh, nobility of Judea, um, 11 years before its destruction, he took 10,000 of them to Babylon and tried to set up a government in exile to run Judea from Babylon. It was very much like the policy of the British. They had this commonwealth. Uh, they had their uh, Whitehall. All the different countries had their own little uh, governments running the country remote control from London. So to uh, Babylon, that was their policy. When they conquered a place, they would have take their leaders into Babylon under their control and make them govern by remote control the land they came from. So 10,000 of the elite of the Jewish people were taken into Babylon. Among them were prophets and sages like Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, as well as the entire Sanhedrin. And they're the ones who created the Jewish future of Babylon. As an illustration, it says, Ezekiel established a Torah academy in the Babylonian town of Sura that lasted continually until 1000 CE. So you imagine, lasted for about 25, no, 1,500 years. Last of 1,500 years. The academy set up by Ezekiel, by Yehezkel, the prophet, lasted for about 1,500 or so years. To put that into perspective, the oldest running educational institution in the Western world is Oxford University, which lasted around 900 years. So can imagine this academy in Surah lasted about 1,500 years. When the temple was destroyed and throngs of bedraggled survivors were forcibly exiled to Babylon, they did not come to a completely non-Jewish country. The new exiles arrived to a community that already had synagogues, Torah academies, other institutions teeming with prophets, scholars, and leaders. That is the prime reason why they did not go by the way of the Ten Tribes. So whoever comes first shapes the experience. Torah scholars were exiled first to Babylon, as well as to North Africa and Spain many years later. They established the character of one type of exile. Babylon was the Jewish people's first experience of exile since the days of biblical Egypt. Egypt had been slavery, blood, toil, tears, abuse, and atrocities. By contrast, Babylon was relatively benign, especially after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and the ascension to the throne of his son, Evel Merodach. The Talmud in Pesachim 87b says that Hashem knew that the Jewish people were not ready to survive the terrible rigors of Roman exile which were to be replete with murder, 
persecution uncertainties. Therefore, the first exile was a reasonably delicate exile, the Babylonian exile. Jews became very wealthy. They rose to positions of prominence rapidly, as they always do in the lands of exile. Babylon came to feel like home in many ways, the Talmud points out. After all, Abraham had come from there. Furthermore, the Babylonian language, Aramaic, was close to the language of Hebrew. It's very close, and that's why the Talmud was written in Aramaic. In fact, Aramaic became the spoken language of the second commonwealth, even in Israel. Babylon became such a home away from home. The Talmud in Ketubot writes, one who lives in Babylon is as though he lives in the land of Israel and will be spared the birth pangs of the Mashiach, whatever that means. There's even an opinion in the Talmud that Jews were forbidden from leaving Babylon until Hashem would come and redeem them. So anyway, that's uh, the idea that Babylon became like a second Israel, the Golden Medina. That's another Golden Medina. But as the minority culture, Jews were always affected by the majority. However, uh, they... In Babylon, they survived and they thrived and they never assimilated. So it's different from all the patterns of assimilation through the years. The pattern of Jewish immigration through the centuries existed in direct relation to the kind of country they lived in. Jews in Spain had fond memories of their golden age. That even when things turned bad, half of them did not leave. They stayed, they converted, and somehow thought they would ride out the storm. By contrast, in Eastern Europe, when the gates of immigration opened, millions of Jews departed because of the bitterness and persecution. When the opportunity arose for the Jews of Babylon to go back to Israel, very few went back. The vast majority of Jews stayed in Babylon despite the rebuilding of the Second Temple because they had carved out a niche for themselves in Babylon. It was not perfect, but Babylon was exiled. The Talmud Sanhedrin 24 a commented, Hashem placed me in darkness. There's a pasuk in uh, Eicha chapter 3. It refers to the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is considered darkness compared to the Jerusalem Talmud, which was completed in Israel 100, uh, 100 years earlier. So even in the best circumstances, Babylon was considered darkness. And the Talmud says, even with all the positive things the Jews of Babylon always had, they always had an insecure feeling among themselves. Exile be, breeds insecurity. They were strangers, even though they were not strangers. After a long reign of 45 years, Nebuchadnezzar died and was succeeded by his son, Ebel Merodach, who freed the imprisoned Jewish kings, Yoyachin and Tzedkiyahu. He ruled 23 years, the Gemara says, Megillah 11b, and was succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. So even though Belshazzar was taking reign, there was a new empire in the east, which is gathering strength, the empire of Persia, which comprised roughly the same area as modern-day Iran. And uh, there is a lot of symbolism between the festival of Purim, which we're celebrating, and modern-day events in Iran. Again, you have the evil uh, people who want to kill, destroy the Jews in Israel. And as Rosh Hashem, we will see tremendous salvation, hopefully even this Purim, as Rosh Hashem. So anyway, so this Evel Merodach, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, freed the, the Jewish kings who were taken captive. He ruled 23 years, and he was succeeded by his son Belshazzar. Persia was gathering in strength, and the Babylonians were either unaware of them or had underestimated them, and they did not ex- expect Persia to become allied with the Medes. So Parasu Madai, Persia and the Medes, the Media Alliance, smashed the, the Babylonian Empire. So even given Babylonian complacency, it was remarkable how quickly they lost the empire. As King Belshazzar was hosting a grand banquet one evening, 
getting drunk on wine, imbibed from the gold and silver utensils of the temple that his uh, grandfather had taken his booty. The book of Daniel chapter five says, a human-like sudden finger appeared and etched four words on the wall. Mene, mene, tekela farsin. There's a famous uh, saying in English to see the writing on the wall. Imagine, despite he sees this hand coming out, writing with a finger on the wall. Imagine. Despite his drunken stupor, the king was so frightened. He sobered up immediately. And they're looking for all the wise men to interpret the message until they called the prophet Daniel. And Daniel said, the message is, you are weighed in scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So this is, this is a chapter five in the book of Daniel. One of the dangers of a country rising to prominence is that its deeds get scrutinized. Hashem scrutinized the deeds and their deeds were found wanting. And that's what happened to Babylon. And literally overnight, in the middle of the party, the Persians and the Medes sweep in. They kill Belshazzar and they take over the Babylonian Empire. And that was retribution for them destroying Judea and the temple. And what triggered the events was Belshazzar using the temple vessels in his party. That's the Gemara Megillah 12a says. Anyway, back to Babylon. Anyway, so we find that the Persians took over Babylon and that's where our story of Purim starts. The Persian exile began on a positive note for the Jewish people, but quickly turned dark with the threat of a Holocaust at the hands of one of history's greatest anti-Semites, Haman. In a remarkably short period of time, the mighty empire of Babylon was toppled taken over by the invading hordes of Persians and Medes. All that had been Babylon now became absorbed into this massive Persian empire, which at its heights included, as the Megiddo says, 127 countries, all the way from Afghanistan and India, and India to the, in the east, to southern Ethiopia and the Sahara continent in the west. The Jews welcomed the change because as much as they had grown accustomed to the conditions of Babylon, they felt some kind of justification that Babylon had fallen. The ones who had destroyed their temple, who had brought them into exile, were destroyed and taken over by the Persians. The change in rulers also opened a new uh, window of opportunity. The Persian king Cyrus permitted the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their temple. In 539 BCE, the first permission to go back and rebuild the temple was received. Unfortunately, it was not a good uh, time to go back. And unfortunately, we're going to see what happened is that very few Jews went back. And the Jews that went back were faced with unsurmountable difficulties. And a lot of them just gave up. And they threw off the yoke of Judaism. And they intermarried, assimilated in Israel. And they stopped worshipping God in Israel. Imagine only later on, in the second chance for going back at the time of Ezra HaSofer, which we're going to talk about, Ezra HaShem, we will talk about it. And they went back, the second uh, going back under the, the son of Queen Esther, Darius the second. it says, Darius II allowed them to go back and rebuild the temple. And that was successful under Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, and they brought all these people back. And they rebuilt the second temple. That was the okay. So uh, Persia took over, and in the meantime, in Israel, in the northern kingdom, the Samaritans we talked about take, took over. Samaritans were the ones who stopped the, the first time the Jews tried to go back and rebuild the temple. They were the ones who complained and caused trouble and havoc, and and the the building of the first temple, the second temple, was, was stopped. 
thanks to them. Anyway, so let's move on and get closer to the story of Purim itself. Now, Babylonian culture did not tempt the Jewish masses to assimilate, as we had discussed. However, from the first chapter of the book of Esther, when the Jews partook of the lavish banquet of, of Ahasuerus, it is evident that assimilation threatened to become an issue under the Persians. In general, the Persians liked the Jews, especially during the initial decade of their rule. We find that they elevated Daniel to be the, the, one of the viceroys of Persia, uh, King Cyrus, and eventually he was forced to throw him into the lion's den because of machinations of his other courtiers against Daniel. And uh, Daniel survived. We all know the story of Daniel and the lion's den that happened under the Persians, under the king Cyrus. And Cyrus was a good friend of the Jews. Cyrus, uh, the, the books of Daniel, phrase Cyrus as a righteous Gentile. And he really wanted to help the Jewish people. So the only thing they did not like was the Jewish religion. The Persians believed in a form of worship, which today is called Zoroastrianism. The Zoroastrians, they have a dual loyalty, a god of light and a god of darkness, a duality, a god of good and a god of evil. And that's why we cannot uh, be Zoroastrians. That's why we do not believe in it. It's paganism, a limited form of paganism, two gods as opposed to a whole pantheon of gods, a good god and a bad god. Anyway, but uh, Jews in the Persian Empire were very close to assimilation as we see how they attended the banquet of Ahasuerus, even though Mordecai, who was one of the leaders, told them not to go. So they, they disobeyed Mordecai and they went. And according to the Talmud, that was the reason for the whole Haman episode and the reason for the impending doom of uh, Holocaust, which caused them to do Teshuvah. Anyway, we're going to talk about that, the miracle of Purim. So the miracle of the Purim story comes to teach us that in life, big events are caused by seemingly small people. So the Purim story plays out on a tapestry of an empire of 127 countries from India to Ethiopia. But it's really the story of a few people. The story of King Ahasuerus with his whims, desires, almost paranoid behavior. Esther, the unwilling heroine. Mordechai, the leader of the Jews, often with no one following him, <laughs> a leader with no followers. And finally, Haman, the epitome of evil and self-gain, who is eventually undone by his own ambition and cruelty. The story begins 50 years after the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, when the Jews find themselves living in Babylonia and eventually the Persian Empire. The Jews are nothing if not adaptable. They immediately begin to make a life of themselves in the exile, even though they mourn for the lost temple in the land of Israel. They're in no rush to go back. Persian government was ridden with instability. Every general saw himself not as a loyal servant of the government, but as a powerful leader. Therefore, the Persian armed forces were never held to be reliable. The spirit of rebellion always blew strongly in the midst. One general who led a successful coup was Ahasuerus, one of the two great villains in the Purim story. The Talmud portrays him as a fool manipulated by his prime minister Haman, but always having enough cunning to stay on top. So Ahasuerus was a Teflon king, I think Hashem was even smarter than Haman. He was the smartest guy around who pretended to be a fool, but you can't be a fool and survive a king, survive as a king of the Persian Empire. So he was a Machiavelli figure. He knew how to use people against people. He had tremendous cunning and a tremendous sense of politics and how to use people to do his dirty work. Anyway, so he invited everyone to the banquet. And the Jews are invited. The Torah, the Megillah tells us, 
you could drink as much as you wanted. There was no force. You could choose whatever wine you wanted. You could have 100% kosher wine if you wanted, no problem. And because of these special arrangements, the Jews mistakenly felt they were accepted in Persian society and they could live without a threat and attended the banquet en masse. Only Mordechai and a small number warned his fellow Jews no good would come to this. He sensed immediately this was not a state affair, it was going to turn degenerate and immoral, and he was right. But the Jewish people did not listen to Mordechai. What's wrong, Rabbi? They said, the food is kosher. But I missed the point. By attending the banquet, the Jews brought upon themselves the threat of genocide. At the banquet, political intrigue within the palace begins. Ahasuerus is married to Queen Vashti, who had royal blood. She was the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. For him, it was a marriage of convenience. He was a, a commoner who became a king through violence. And it was a chance for him to cement his claim to the throne. After all, he was not of royal blood. He was a, a very successful general. It was also an attempt to make loyal subjects of the Babylonians. She's a Babylonian queen. Now the Babylonians will be content and they will not rebel against them. But Vashti is an independent woman. She demeans him publicly and Hashverosh, who has a very short fuse, he doesn't say so explicitly in the Megillah, it's very, very politically correct, but she was taken away never to be seen again. The Megillah does not say she was executed, but that was the implication of the Megillah. So, but the real problem with attending the banquet was his purpose to celebrate the fact that the prophecy of Jeremiah, which predicted the Jewish people would be redeemed after 70 years, which is in Jeremiah chapter 29, was proven false. In actuality, Hashverosh's calculation was false. However, in his mind, at least the peace was a celebration. The Jews would remain in exile forever and be subservient to him and help his empire grow and was to celebrate, in fact, the downfall of the Jews. To emphasize, to emphasize this point, at the climax of the 180-day celebration, Hashverosh takes out the utensils of the temple that he inherited from the Babylonians and displayed them. The Talmud says in Megillah 12a, he even put on the garments that belonged to the high priest. The Jews in attendance must have stood there aghast, but it was too late. Their presence gave credence to the king's act. So it was a desecration just to go to their party. So let's talk. start talking about some of the major points in the Megillah to introduce uh, next week's class, Bezrat Hashem. And so number one is we have this strange name for this holiday. This holiday is called Purim. So the, the Megillah says, Al-Shem Hapur. It was named after the lottery that Haman cast to find which month to kill the Jewish people. He cast the lottery. Luckily for us, it fell on the 12th month. Imagine if the destruction would have fallen on the first month or the second month, the Jews would have very little time to avoid the destruction. But fortunately for us, it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, because he, he did his lottery on Nisan. And uh, so it's interesting. It's called a festival, a lottery. Why would we name our festival? Okay, so Haman made a lottery. Does that mean we name, we name our festival lottery? It's a very strange name to do a festival. And the answer is that Haman and Amalek. Haman was a descendant of Amalek. It says by Amalek, They happened on the way. Amalek and Haman believed in luck and lottery, the lottery of life. They don't believe in God. They believe that everything is chance. Everything is chance, just like evolution. There is no God. There is no master of the universe. There's no Rebono Shalom. We believe that everything is chance. Our God is the God of chance. We named our festival Purim. 
And we read about the story in the Megillah to prove that there's a God above chance. Purim is chance. Uh, if you read the book of the Megillah, you'll see nothing was chance. Everything was plotted. There's a God behind the scenes of history. Um, whenever we say there's actually, there's no name of God in the Megillah, it's one of the big questions. How can you have a holy book with no name of God? One of the answers is that it was written, Mordechai, who was uh, the king's deputy, was appointed uh, by him, by the king and Esther as the deputy to the king, made it an official document of the empire, the Persian empire. He didn't want to put God's name in there because every people in the empire would substitute their God for our God. And therefore, he just left God's name blank. But it says that whenever it says the word Hamelech, the king, it's not referring to Hashverosh, it's, it's referring to God. And we know that King David says, Hashem is the God in Israel. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. The Talmud says in Megillah, he doesn't slumber and he doesn't let other people sleep when the Jews are at peril. And that's why the King Hashverosh, it says, could not sleep that night. And it will come to that. But that's the name of the festival. It's called Purim Lottery to show the opposite. Haman believed that everything is chance. There's no God in control. This whole world is run by chance, like the evolutionists. There's no God in control. It's all evolution. It's all chance. It's all luck. We believe in a God who is behind the scenes. Hashem is running the world. And we, we illustrate that by using the word Purim. It's more like a joke. The festival of Purim is not about Purim at all. It's about God behind history. It's amazing. God is in control. And this is also illustrated by the name of our heroine. Her name was Esther, but her Hebrew name was Hadassah. So it's interesting how the Jews already started changing their names. Hadassah, he is there. Hadassah was Esther. Esther is a very, very Babylonian name. Ishtar, or a star, one of the idolatries of Babylon. And her name also. So the Talmud asks, where is her name alluded to in the Bible, in the Torah? And the answer is alluded to in one of the curses in the book of Dvarim. Hashem says at the end of the days, I will hide my face from them. The book of Esther is all about Hashem hiding behind events in history. It's amazing. Hashem is hiding behind events in history. And uh, we, think, we look at history, look at it, it's all luck, it's all chance. But Hashem is behind the scenes. And, and we have to find, our job is to find Hashem. Our job is to point out we think it's all chance, but really it's Hashem's plan. Hashem is a plan. Today we're, we're seeing, we're living. We're living God's plan. We're, we're seeing now the amazing, it's amazing. I mean, if I think about the events today, we're witnessing miracles of the end of days that all the Jews are gathered, gathering together in the land of Israel, in the land of our birthplace, and we're coming back home. So we're seeing God's hand in history. So Esther represents hiddenness, Hashem's hidden presence. And we have to look for Hashem. Where is Hashem? Where is Hashem? What is Hashem's plan for us? What does Hashem want from us? Okay, that's Esther. Esther is Hester Panim. Esther is based on this idea of Hester Panim. Haman, the word Haman. It's interesting. Talmud says, where is the word Haman alluded to in the Torah? And it points out to a pasuk right at the beginning of Breshi. Where Hashem asks Adam. Adam eats from this fruit of the tree, the forbidden fruit. And Hashem says to Adam, Hamin ha'etz hazeh. Did you eat from this tree? The word hamin. Hey, memnun has the same letters as the word haman. So the question we have is, what is the Talmud telling us? What is the connection between haman and Adam HaRishon? And the answer is that's a very big fundamental connection. And that is, there's two people in human history that had everything. Adam HaRishon had everything. 
He had Ganedin. He had all the fruits in Ganedin. He had the most beautiful wife made to measure, Hava. He had mastery over the animals. He had mastery over the world. He was the master of the world, apart from Hashem. He had everything. But when he thought about the fruit of the tree, I, know, I don't have the fruit of the tree. He said, if I have everything except for that fruit, this is what exactly what Haman says. He had everything except for Mordechai, the Jew, bowing down to him. He says, he was the richest man in the whole empire, apart from the king. And he says famous words, Whatever I have is worth nothing. That was the comparison between Adam and Haman, is that they had everything, but when they thought of what they couldn't have, everything they had was worthless. That's a very poor way of looking at things. Is the glass half empty or the glass half full? It was more than half full. It was nearly full to the brim. But since they couldn't have one thing, Adam couldn't have the fruit of the tree, he was glum. He was depressed. That's what Haman says. Whenever I think of Mordechai the Jew, even though I have everything, I have children, I have money, I have power, I have prestige, everyone bows down to me except for this one Jew. I have everything. Everything I have is worth nothing. That's a terrible perspective on life. One thing goes bad and the person says, whatever I have is worth nothing. The person's going to count their blessings every single day. And that's why every morning we start off with a bricker of shachar. Thank you for this. Hashem, bless for you. Hashem, for giving me this. Our eyesight, our feet, our ground under our feet, our shoes, everything we have, we thank God. Because the opposite is Haman. Haman and Adam Rishon, who never thank God for their blessings, but they look for things they couldn't have. And they said, because of that, we have nothing. So that's Haman. The name of Mordechai is even stranger. The word Mordechai is definitely not a Jewish name. It's a very, very Babylonian name. In fact, it's based on one of the gods of Babylon, Marduk. Marduk was one of the gods of Babylon, Mordechai. However, the rabbis say Mordechai comes from two words in the Torah, which are explained by Onkelos, the convert, who translated the Torah into Aramaic. And he translates these words, which is in Parsha Kitesa, which we're going to read in a few weeks, which talk about the 11 spices of the incense. 11 spices of the incense. One of the spices is mor dror. Mor dror is uh, musk, which is beaten into a very fine smelling uh, fragrance. Musk. Mor dror, translated as maradachia. Uncle translates it as maradachia. Maradachia is the words used to find the word Mordechai. Maradachia Mordechai. So that's the meaning of Mordechai in our tradition. Uh, even though it's based on the, on the Babylonian Marduk, the Hebrew uh, tradition is it's Mordor, very fine musk. Mordechai is very fine musk. What's interesting is Mordechai was a descendant of Shimi Ben-Gera. Shimi Ben-Gera was a descendant of King Saul who was spared by King David. Really, King David should have killed Shimei Gera. Shimei Gera gave, um, cursed King David because he hated David, who had been held responsible for the death of King Saul and his sons and the usurpation of the throne of Israel. King Saul was the first king, and King David was the second king. And Shimei Ben Gera cursed King David, and King David nevertheless kept him alive and had mercy on him, whereas so the Talmud compares the mercy of King Saul. King Saul had spared the king of Amalek, Agad, and through the mercy of King Saul, we have Haman, and through the mercy of King David, we have Mordechai. So we learn over here a very important lesson. The misplaced mercy of King Saul caused Agad, caused Haman, survival, and the well-deserved mercy 
of uh, David caused the survival of Mordechai. So there's different kinds of mercy. Mercy to the cruel is cruelty. Mercy to the kind is real mercy. But Rav Hashem, we will see in our lives a lot of mercy. We'll see in our lives a lot of uh, Yeshua, redemption. But Hashem, just like the Jews were survived the Purim saga in Paras in Persia, we too will survive the threats of the modern Persia and the modern Hamans who want to destroy Israel today. As Rav Hashem, we will see salvation this Purim, just as we saw salvation in Purim that passed. Next week... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.